If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Romans, tells the story of a very wealthy man who had a great many very valuable art treasures. He only had one son, and the son was quite ordinary, but dearly loved by his father. And the son died at a young age. And the father was so grieved because of the loss of his son that a few months later, he died as well. And the father's will stipulated that at his death, all of his artworks were to be publicly auctioned. And that the first painting that was to be sold was one of his sons. And on the day of the auction, the specified painting uh, was displayed and the bidding was opened. But because the son and the artist were not well known, there were no bids on the painting. Finally, a longtime servant of the father and a friend of the boy very timidly bid 75 cents which was all the money that he had. When there were no other bids, the painting was given to the servant. At that point, the sale was stopped, and an official read the remainder of the will. And the will specified that anyone who cared enough for his son to buy that painting got all the rest of the estate. Uh, that is an illustration of God's provision for fallen mankind. Anyone who loves and receives the Son, Jesus Christ, will inherit all of the Father's wealth. It is by receiving the Son that we enter into the glories, the riches of the Father. That is the good news of the gospel. That everyone who receives Jesus Christ by faith has every spiritual blessing in him. That is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you through his poverty, might become rich. Quoting Isaiah, the apostle declared that the riches of Jesus Christ include things which the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and which has not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In Christ, the believer has riches beyond the imagination. The Christian has life that will never end, a spring of spiritual water that will never dry up, a gift that can never be lost, a love from which he can never be separated, a calling that cannot be revoked, a foundation that cannot be destroyed, and an inheritance that will never diminish. In our text this morning, which is verse 5, 
of Romans chapter 1, Paul continues to summarize this gospel, the good news. He talks about its provision, its proclamation, and its purpose. He mentions basically two very important provisions of the gospel of God. One is conversion, which is completely by God's grace, and the other is vocation, which in Paul's case was apostleship. All of us are saved to serve. All of us have been brought into the kingdom by the grace of God that we might serve God. I think that Paul is speaking here of the grace by which every believer comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor in which a believer himself does not and cannot contribute anything of worth. Paul said, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. As a result, no one can boast. Grace is God's loving mercy through which he grants salvation as a gift to those who trust in his Son, to those who believe on Jesus Christ. Whenever any person places his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God sovereignly breathes into that person his own divine life. Christians are alive spiritually because they have been born from above. They have been created anew with the very life of God himself. That's why a believer can have no basis for congratulating himself. That is, by the way, why salvation is of God. It is of God. The faith and the grace is a gift of God. Why did you come into the kingdom? Because God, God sovereignly brought you into the kingdom. You say, oh, well, wait a minute, though. I believed, really. How did you believe? It was a gift of God. That's how you believe. So that when you get to heaven, you not be strutting all over the place saying, well, you know, I'm here because I believed. There's a bunch of people down there who didn't believe, you know, but I'm better than they are. I'm smarter. I'm a little, you know, a little just a cut above. No. The Bible says it is all by grace. It is a gift. Salvation doesn't come by baptism. Doesn't come by confirmation. Doesn't come by communion. Doesn't come by church membership or church attendance or by keeping the Ten Commandments or by trying to live up to the Sermon on the Mount or by serving other people or even by serving God. Salvation doesn't come by being morally upright, respectable, and self-giving. Salvation comes only by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not enough even to believe that there is a God and believe that he's the right God. 
Because James said even the demons do that. They believe and they tremble. They are affected in their mind and in their emotions. Not enough. You must place your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of sin and receive God's gracious provision of forgiveness that is offered by what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Another provision of the good news of God is that he not only saves us, but then he calls us into his service. Paul talks about apostleship here. He, he occupied the office of an apostle. The, the Greek term, apostolos, is usually just transliterated. In other words, it's not translated, but transliterated. The letters are just brought over into English. If you translate apostolos, it means one who is sent. And in the early church, God sovereignly chose 13 men and placed them in the office of apostle, giving them divine authority to proclaim and miraculously authenticate the gospel. The office of an apostle ceased when those whom God had specifically chosen for that task had died. There are no more apostles in that sense. But every person who belongs to Jesus Christ is an apostle of, in a more general sense. That is that when we are saved, we are sent out in order to do God's bidding, to do his will. In an unofficial sense, anyone who is sent on a spiritual mission, anyone who represents the Savior and brings the good news of salvation is an apostle in the sense that they are commissioned for God's service. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representative of a head of state that is sent to another country, a country that is not his own. We are ambassadors for Christ because the country that we are in is not our own. You're not, you're not first of all, an, an American and then a Christian second. You are a Christian and an American second. You're, just a, you're a Christian that just happens to live in America. And we are sent here by the King of Kings as ambassadors, as representatives of Him. Uh, sometimes you'll have a, a, an athletically inept student, you know, who uh, might make the team, but the coach would never put him in. You know, that, that was kind of the case, uh, in my case, that was what always happened. You know, people ask me, did you, did you play football in high school? Yeah, a little. Were, were you any good? Let's put it this way. I was small, but I was really, really slow. You know, so I had that going, you know, kind of for me. I mean, you know, you know, these, these people go run a 4-4-40. You know, I could probably run an 8-4-40, okay? 
you know. So, you know, I didn't get I didn't get put in because I wasn't good enough to play. That doesn't happen in the kingdom. Everyone that God saves can serve. And everyone has a gift. Everyone sovereignly saved by God's grace is gifted somehow to serve in the kingdom. You have a gift. It may not be public speaking. It, you know, it may, may not be the ability to teach, but you have a gift. And you are to exercise that gift in the kingdom. It's always interesting to me that the Apostle Paul likens it to members of the body. You know, if, if your whole body, he says, were an eye, how could you hear? Or if your whole body was an ear, how could you see? If one part of your body doesn't work anymore, if you're my age, a whole bunch of them don't work. But anyway, if, if one part of your body doesn't work anymore, it affects the rest of the body. If your hand will not work, then it affects the rest of the body. In a similar fashion, in the church, we have a lot of people who are not exercising their gifts. They're a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear, and they're letting somebody else do the work that they should be doing. There is all kinds of things that I can't do, you know. There's more things I can't do than I can, you know. I have, we have, men and women in this church that are gifted in ways that I am not. And so I trust them that they will serve in the capacity that God has placed them for the upbuilding of the body. They will use their gifts, their talents, in order for the body to be edified. And I'll use mine. You, you just simply have to understand that you were not saved to do nothing. You were saved to serve. It might be prayer ministry. It, it might be that of encouragement. It might be that of helps. But you were saved to serve. You were saved in order to affect the rest of the body in a positive way. You know. So then he talks about, in the second part of verse 5, the proclamation of the good news. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Uh, here we get into what is, there was a big brouhaha in the church 30 years ago about lordship salvation. And there's always people who argue against it. And they say that it destroys the, uh, the gospel. Uh, if you demand obedience, that, that uh, the simple gospel can't be mixed with works. Well, the gift of salvation requires no works, can't have any works. But those who've truly been given the gift of salvation do good works. They are 
they are brought into the kingdom for the obedience of faith. There's two ways that phrase can be interpreted. First, it could be interpreted to be referring to the obedience that faith produces, the, in, in the, that it re, the results of it. I don't think that's the true meaning. But even if it is the correct interpretation, the point is still plain. Paul would be saying that true biblical faith must, must produce obedience. If the faith that one has does not lead to obedience, it is not true biblical faith. It may be intellectual assent of the highest order, but it is not a living faith. It does not join us to Jesus Christ, and it saves no one. The case is even stronger that a proper interpretation of this is uh, faith which is obedience. Uh, and it's an extremely important point because it determines how we understand the gospel and how we understand God's command to evangelize. In much of the world today, how is evangelism conducted? The gospel is offered to people as something that is good for them. Uh, it will make them happy. It will give them a, a, a better uh, financial life or a better marital life. Uh, it is something that uh, will kind of enrich their life. But they are free to refuse it if they want. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman, we're told. And he would never coerce anybody. Jonah would find that kind of thinking a little bit off kilter, if you've read his book. But with a framework like that, sin becomes little more than bad choices. And faith only means that you've begun to see the issues clearly. What is missing in this contemporary approach is that sin is primarily disobedience. And God commands us to repent and repudiate it. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Primarily, it is rebellion against God. Sin is a refusal to listen to the voice of God. Sin is turning your back on God and doing whatever you want. That's ultimately what sin is. You see the importance of realizing that? We've all met people who say, uh, you know, I, I, I really can't regard myself as much of a sinner, you know. I've never stolen anything, never killed anybody, never committed adultery, never got drunk. They mean they're not guilty of certain sins, of having committed them. They're nice and respectable people. And sometimes you'll even hear people, I've had people tell me, gosh, I, I wish I'd been a, a real, you know, scoundrel so that I'd have a powerful testimony, you know, like some people do today, a great experience of salvation. Why do people talk like that? Because they have a wrong definition of sin. They don't see sin as disobedience. They don't see that salvation is bringing them to the obedience of faith, or faith which is obedience. For those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they are brought to obedience. Listen, sin is a refusal 
to listen to the voice and the word of God. So if you're living your own life in a very respectable manner and you're not committing any gross sins, but you're not listening to God, you're not doing his bidding, you're not doing his will, then you're a gross sinner. Let's go back to the, to the proof of all of this. What was the original sin? What was the original sin in the Garden of Eden? What, did, did Adam and Eve get drunk? Did they steal something? Did, did they commit adultery? What, what did they do? They listened to the devil when he said, Yea, hath God said? They doubted the word of God. And then they denied the word of God. That was the original sin. That was what plunged mankind into sin. And that is sin in, his es in its essence. Is to doubt the word of God. Is to deny the word of God. Not be obedient to the word of God. That's why Paul can say in chapter 8 of this epistle, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. That's it. Very respectable people, but if that is sin, then the whole purpose of the preaching of the gospel is to call us to the exact opposite, to call us to listen to the Word of God, to obey the Word of God. If sin is disobedience, then what is right? Obedience. If sin is refusal to listen to God, what is the right thing? To listen to God. And, and that is the very thing the gospel calls us to, to the obedience of faith. To listen to what God has said about his son. That's why Paul is so uh, concerned to stress his role as an apostle. That he's called and commissioned to be God's ambassador. We are called to turn from our sinful disobedience and instead obey him by believing in and following the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why Paul approached the gospel this way, though we often overlook it. How did, how did Paul conclude his great sermon to the other Athenians? You know, the ones on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He said, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world by the man he has appointed. In God's name, Paul commanded the Greeks to repent. He didn't say, well, now, you, if you want to come now, you know, God will just make your life. You'll have money and you'll have fame and everything will just be so wonderful if you'll just, if you'll just accept Jesus. Accept Jesus, a phrase that does not occur in the Bible. You, you better be hopeful that Jesus accepts you. You know what I'm saying? Because all of us as sinners are guilty of cosmic treason. We have disobeyed the great God of heaven 
And he commands us to repent. He commands us to repent and to believe. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, summarizing the response of the Roman Christians to the gospel, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. The weakness of much of our contemporary Christianity, I think, can be traced to a uh, deficiency at this point. We have failed to present the gospel as a command to be obeyed. We minimize sin. Sin is uh, some, some great horrible thing that people do. The great horrible thing that people do is they don't believe God. That's what's great and horrible. All of us commit various kinds of sins. That really doesn't matter. They're just, they're just different sins for different people. But what we are commanded to do is to repent of not believing God, of trusting Him. That's the purpose of the good news. Notice Paul says finally, it is for the sake of His name. Though God gave his own son to save the world and he doesn't wish anyone to perish, the primary purpose of the gospel is not for man's sake. The primary purpose of the gospel is for God's sake. Man's salvation is simply a byproduct of God's grace. The, the main purpose of salvation is to focus on the glory of God. All redemptive history focuses on the glory of God. And throughout eternity, the accomplishments of his redemption will continue to be a, a memorial to his grace and his majesty and his love. Because of his gracious love for helpless fallen mankind, salvation is of importance to God for man's sake. But because of his own perfection... It is infinitely more important to him for his, own, for his own sake. God is ultimately and totally committed to the exaltation of his own glory. That is anathema to a fallen man. You know, God can't do the things that the Old Testament, for instance, says that he does. He has no right to order the extermination of a people. Really, even though he has warned them for 500 years of their sin and commanded them to repent and they refuse, but he is not, for the sake of his own glory, supposed to bring about judgment. Listen, man has a depraved perspective. We do not look at things as God does. We don't look at things as primarily being for the glory of God. We look at what we're going to get out of it. But if God is glorified, I, I, I've, been, I've been interested, I'm sure as you have, uh, in following this uh, coronavirus that is coming out of the Huan province in China. And I read yesterday a Harvard uh, doctor uh, who said that it may well be the greatest pandemic since the 1918 Spanish 
influenza outbreak. Someday, someday there will come a plague that man will not be able to cure. Someday there is coming a plague that there will be no antidote for. It will be God's judgment on humanity. And it will be perfectly justified. Perfectly justified. And God will be glorified in it. God is always glorified. Either in his grace and his mercy. Or in his righteousness and justice. But God will be glorified. It is important that we read this as the obedience of faith. What is the first reason that I should believe the gospel? It is not because it will do this or that for me, or what it will do for others. Primarily, I preach it because it is the record God gave concerning His Son, and that if you do not believe it, you make God a liar. You are rejecting the holy eternal word of the eternal God and that is a terrible sin we are to preach this gospel proclaim this gospel and tell men that if they refuse it there remains nothing for them but perdition and punishment they are to believe and obey Uh, faith is obedience to the Word of God. If you have been truly saved, you have a desire to be obedient to the Word of God. The direction of your life is towards obedience. If you do not have that desire, if that is not the direction of your life, then you may question as to whether or not you've truly been saved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Only the believing obey. Only the obedient believe. God commands all men everywhere to repent. The obedience of faith for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you.